The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to the Linux Action Show, episode 397. My name is Chris, and we have a special holiday edition of the big show for you this week. How do you take all of the big show from 2015 and put it into a single episode? Well, friends, it takes a little podcasting magic and a whole lot of saying, nope, not that one, nope, not that one. There were so many clips I wanted to put in this week's episode, but I boiled it down to just a few of our moments that I thought were really great from 2015. And in some of them, I thought I might have a chance to give you some additional behind-the-scenes information about certain clips, more context, kind of what we were thinking from a, from a production standpoint or, or little tidbits like that. So that'll be sprinkled in throughout this episode as I watch these clips with you and I come back to visit and share those anecdotes with you. Why don't we get started with something that happened very early in 2015. I think it might have been like January 5th, and that was our chance to sit down and have a chat with the longtime kernel developer, Greg KH, who turns out to be a Pacific Northwest native, and I asked him how he got started in computers. Oh, that was a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, I was a little kid, and my father bought a TRS-80 Model 3 and brought it home and didn't know what to do with it. So oh, um, That's awesome. I I learned basic from it and magazines reading and took it and went from there. And that was, wow. That was a long time. My friends said they never saw me that summer. I think it was between sixth and seventh grade. <laughs> well, Greg, I, uh, I pronounced nice. your last name Corora Hartman. I've always known you as Greg KH. Did I get the pronunciation close? Close. It's, the first part is crow, like the bird. Crow okay. Hartman. So uh, I got I have a little confession to make before we get in the rest of the show because I feel kind of dumb about this. Uh, for some reason, I always pictured you potentially in Germany or somewhere somewhere else. Turns out you're kind of in our backyard. You're in the Seattle area. Uh, how much does the typical Seattle weather give you as, a, as an advantage as a developer? Be honest. Well, I never want to go outside, right? It's all <laughs> exactly. <rainy. laughs> well, um, yeah, no, I've lived no. in Seattle for five years. I've lived in Portland before that for ten years. So I've done actually all my Linux work. In the Pacific Northwest. I'll be honest. I thought you were in Germany for a long time. I uh, worked for Susan. and I had a German yeah. email address. Yeah. So that's that's cool. That's what, did, that's what did it. So, uh, but today, uh, you're well known for your contributions to the Linux kernel. Uh, you're the maintainer of the stable branch. What does that mean? What what role do you play as a kernel developer as the maintainer of the stable branch? Uh, is that like for, I believe, for enterprise distros, right? No, it's for the machines, the kernels you run. Okay, um, so this is okay. So this is you are okay. So uh, the stable branch is anything that's considered stable today. I was good. I'm glad we cleared that up. So what does that job involve as the maintainer of the stable branch? So Linus does a release of the main tree every two to three months, right? We make it release. I take that release and then do a new release about once a week with all the bug fixes that happen to have showed up in Linus's tree for the past week. Okay, um, oh, that's. So that, like he does 3.18, and I'll do 3.18.1.2.3.4, and all the patches that go in there are patches that are in Linus's tree. We never want to diverge. Um, and then the distros take those releases and put them in their kernels. Um, take those; they base it on their distro. They base their distro on those kernels. So like Fedora, Arch, Gen2. Sousa, um, yeah. Ubuntu, they all base yeah. their kernels on those stable. Can, uh, one thing I've noticed, Greg, when I was, uh, I went back over a lot of your presentations uh, before our chat today, uh, and uh, one of the things I've noticed that you often do is you'll start your presentation with a slide that gives uh, a snapshot of the scope of daily activity in the Linux kernel. And uh, when you present it, 
you're always kind of blown away by the numbers. And I've gone back as far as 2006, and in every presentation, you're like, can you believe these numbers? These are daily numbers. And uh, every time you give the presentation now for years, the numbers are, are always astronomically larger. And so could you, I don't know if you have rough ideas, but could you give our audience some idea of the scale of development for the Linux kernel? Um, yeah, I've been, so what, back in 2006, when I started that talk, we were running at like two changes an hour, 24 hours a day. And everybody was like, that's just crazy an impossible rate of change. We'll never be able to keep up with that. Uh, I think the two kernel releases ago, we did nine changes an hour. Oh, there's my presentation right oh, there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're averaging about seven and a half, I think to eight. I haven't, don't remember the numbers right now. Changes an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and again, I, the Linux Foundation tells me to stop saying the word scary um, in these presentations. <laughs> I noticed you do but, use um, the word scary a few times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's just, I mean, the traditional computer science model of never change anything that's actually working, um, it turns out that's wrong because the world changes, so you need to change along with the world. If your operating system doesn't change, it's dead. It's right. that simple. Well, so it, we it, have to change to keep up with that. I mean, you do sort of, you sort of say it in all of your talks, but it, it is is fundamentally true. Uh, it seems like the development around the Linux kernel seems to break all of the rules. I uh, people look at it from the outside, and I think they consider it to be kind of chaotic, almost in a way. But it's actually uh, very structured in terms of the order of development structure and who's responsible for what. And I think you called it one time a a, cha a, a chain of blame. Even can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, so every patch that goes into the kernel is um, has your name on it, of who wrote it, and that's the change that's made. And then that's reviewed by somebody like a maintainer of that subsystem or that driver, and then they put their name on it, say signed off by. And then they send it off to the subsystem owner of that, so like USB, and I'll review that and put my name on it. And then, we, and then it goes into Linus's tree. Well, that that's a nice little um, legal sign-off by saying who did what to this file, um, but there's also a nice path of blame because if it turns out that that patch was wrong, all those three people have their name on it. They said it was right. They're on the hook to fix it. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a very personal ownership. You own the file. You own the you own the change. Um, very much so with your name on it. We don't care about what company you work for or anything like that. But it's your name on that change. Right. So it's very ownership it's almost uh it's funny because it's uh, even though it's so huge like i'm looking at uh i'm looking at your presentation uh and the number of people that are involved uh 8700 lines added every day it seems like what you're doing is the exact opposite of what happens in a bureaucracy where essentially everybody's deferring blame but in the kernel development there's a very structured system there to prevent that which keeps people accountable uh but i look at these numbers 3000 de developers yeah. uh 3483 uh, at a certain point, how does it just not fall apart? How does it how does it continue to scale? Um, we're really actually autonomous. Every subsystem is pretty much independent in a way. I mean, like USB is independent from networking, is independent from um, sound, is independent from other bits and pieces. We all do connect through well well defined interfaces, but um, we all work on our own little worlds, and then we merge together. And then the the really nice thing is, I mean, every single day, all the subsystem trees are pulled together and built. And all the merge together, Linux Next happens. Um, Stephen Rothwell in Australia pulls it all together every single day. He's been doing that for years, it. right? Yeah, he's been doing it for years. And it, it tells us exactly what is going wrong. So, like, if I have changes that broke the networking subsystem merge, um, then I know that. And then I can fix it up. And before it gets to Linux, we know that. We also have something really, really amazing called the Zero Day Bot. Uh, a guy in China working for Intel um, 
I push a change out to my kernel trees, I swear in 15 minutes he'll say, oh, this single patch at this location was wrong. Please fix it. <laughs> wow. Um, it's scary how fast and how, how well it works. Um, I talked to him at the last kernel summit, and he said, yeah, we're scaling really well. We can handle 3,000 more kernel trees. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Well, so I wonder, though. So, um, and that's so every single patch of every single person that's submitted um, to the kernel tree, to a subsystem tree, has been tested. Yeah. It's been built tested. It's been built tests with random configurations. It runs performance tests are run on it. Um, a bunch of regression tests are run on it. So yeah. this stuff is tested really well before it ever hits Linus. I wonder, though, So my, uh, where I'm going with this is uh, the other thing that sometimes the kernel team gets a reputation for is flare-ups when something goes wrong. Is it a combination of the crazy scale of development, the pace of development, and the fact that there is a chain of accountability that these flare-ups happen? What do you suppose that, where does that rep come from, and is it justified? The rep comes from the fact that random reporters read development mailing lists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they yep. pick things up. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, and they, I mean, okay, so I mean, I, I, I hearken this back to the fact that, um, do you put a live microphone on a professional baseball manager's jersey during a game right no of course not right yeah exactly of course not. right right because he's cussing out the first baseman for making a stupid play right right, right. the first baseman's a professional he knows he should have done something right yeah you got, got cussed out okay great yeah you move on and work right out. exactly if you look at people publicly arguing with each other um we all know each other we've known each other for 10 15 years we're drank beer with each other if somebody says to me hey you did something stupid i'm like yeah you're right i did something stupid okay i'll fix that up we're professionals we know this and has anybody ever read internal mailing lists for um, engineering development groups or companies? Right. I've been in meetings at some very major companies where people cry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I. yeah. yeah well, it's brutal <laughs> internally. Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, the fact is we're doing everything in public. So yeah. People pounce on things that we say publicly because they don't know the context of what they're doing. Do you ever so wish you could the, do I mean, it not in public? Do you ever wish you could do it behind, at least have the conversations and discussions not in public? Not necessarily the development, of course, but the conversations. I, I don't know. Why Why would we take one thing private that isn't? Right. Do you I think mean, so? We, we do all our development public. But I mean, if you look, so our rate uh, on our just the Linux kernel mailing list is about five to 600 emails a day. Whoa. Right? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> nobody reads it all. We no. all filter it. But I mean, if you look at, so we have a flare up um, twice yeah. a year. So yeah. what, what's the, what's that percentage of how many emails to arguments to actually construct? That's an amazing ratio. <laughs> That's an amazing wow. ratio, really. Uh, better than my ratio. I mean, how well <laughs> we actually are working. Any group has arguments. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and yep. the fact that we do argue is constructive criticism. We are arguing and we can stand up for a point of view and change people's minds. I mean, the really, really good thing about the core kernel developers is you can change our mind. Yeah. If you think that you're, what you were doing is right and Linus is wrong or I am wrong or David Miller is wrong, we change. Sure. We're, we're open to suggestions. Well, and in, in, an, so. in an interesting way, too, it, it sort of publicly sends the message, we hold people accountable, which is actually a, a good thing to know about the core development of Linux, too. So there's... Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to get your take on it because I think it's a it's a common conception. And I don't know if I agree with it either. Uh, all yeah, right. but it's also, I mean, no, I mean, I, I point out strongly that no people joining our community for the first time has ever treated this manner. I mean, that's not the right. way it happened. Right. Well, that's cool. It, it, yeah. Right. These are friends arguing with right. each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, we all know each other. It's we, not like you're a newbie yeah. coming into it being screamed at. It. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Long, long time relationships. No. Yeah. No, gotcha. these are long time relationships of people that do that. I mean, again, back to the baseball metaphor, because man professional managers yell at other players, it doesn't detract anything from the little leaguers joining. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, and I think it. Uh, I think you look at the level of contributions to the kernel. Uh, I noticed too that uh, you, it used to be a fairly hard sell. To potentially, let's just take. And I don't really want to pick on it, but let's just take Google. Uh, you know, I think back in two thousand six when you uh, talked to Google. Uh, in terms of people, companies con- contributing to Linux kernel, they are like spot number 13. If you took out one of their top contributors, they went way, way down the list. Uh, and you basically went there and said, look, here's the reason why Google needs to care about the Linux kernel. This is an important technology platform that you've hitched yourself to, but you don't have a say in its direction right now. But these companies do have a say. And it was kind of a hard sell in a sense. But I look at it where we're at now with these numbers in 2014, and I think, do you still feel that that is as true today that we have to go out there and get these companies to get involved? Or have they just kind of figured it out now? If they need to be competitive, they've got to work upstream. Oh, I wish they had figured it out already. <laughs> I've been giving that same talk for since 2006. Yeah. My wife jokes, Why, how, doesn't everybody know this already? But I mean, I, my response is, is it's always kindergarten somewhere, right? <laughs> I like um, that. Well, it's a great talk, There's too. A, but, yeah, well, it's a fun talk. I've been able to give the same talk, just update the numbers and mm-hmm. give it for eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's true. I mean, I gave this talk to a very huge, well-known Seattle-based company a few months ago because they're not on this list. They rely everything Mm. on Linux, and yet their corporate culture insists that they're not allowed to contribute. Mm. Um, So they don't know. I mean, it costs you money to not contribute. I mean, Intel and IBM have publicly said it is cheaper and faster and better to contribute upstream and do your development that way. And that's why Google changed. Google realized that. And they fix that. Mm-hmm. And Google now is a huge contributor because it takes time and money to try and keep a fork mm-hmm. and to try and keep your development effort separate. Um, Intel is so far ahead of everybody. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, we've had to remove code from the kernel for chips that they never shipped. They were that far ahead in the development wow. process that they start that at that soon contributing to the kernel. Yes. And the same thing with um, IBM. IBM had code for a new processor that was accepted into the kernel tree before it taped out. <laughs> I mean, they're that wow. far ahead. IBM and Intel is that far ahead of what, what's yeah. going on. Hmm. They know what they're doing. And, and, and as a result, uh, you know, you see, it, uh, you see it benefit Intel, not just obviously in the areas that they're interested in, but now as end users, uh, when I install Fedora 21, I get Wayland out of the box on my Intel machines. And it's just sort of already there and ready to go. It's a really great experience. Uh, so I guess this, I guess that means the cell does continue on. Um, how do you feel about Android? It seems like, uh, from what I've read, you're pretty ambivalent towards it. You don't consider it to necessarily be a bad thing. Do you think Linux gets enough credit in the picture of Android, or do you even care? Um, I don't care, <laughs> in a way, because I'm happy they're using Linux kernel. Yeah. I mean, what they did was actually a really cool thing. They used the kernel and entirely new user space libraries in such a way you can drop a distro on top of it and it doesn't conflict. So that's a really cool engineering effort. Yeah. Um, the Andro- Android kernel code has been merged for years. I mean, you can run Android on a stock kernel just fine. Right. Um, there's no problem there. Um, that's been going on well. Um, I've actually merged some of the binder code out of the staging tree into the main part of the Linux kernel for this for the next kernel release. Hmm. And um, because it's going, people rely on it. It's horrible, crazy code. It should never be used outside of an Android system, but hmm. the people rely on it. And the whole argument of all the Android stuff, I mean, we're talking 7,000 lines of code. I joke that's one-third the size of your serial port driver. <laughs> <laughs> that really puts it in perspective, doesn't wow. it? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the Android code that was merged outside, everybody, when you ship a product, has, has bits and pieces that aren't merged upstream. That's just the way things go based on the timelines and everything else. And so it was just a tiny bit there. Um, mm-hmm. So it works well. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, it's the it's the new year, Greg, uh, and uh, I love to look ahead and uh, just in your opinion, looking in your specific crystal ball, when we get towards the end of 2015, early 2016, do you see things going maybe a little more towards the direction of uh, of rolling? I noticed in one of your talks, you're the maintainer of the stable branch, and you said you don't necessarily think some companies in development should use stable. You think they need to stay very current, maybe stay a little more rolling. Do you do you see the world of Linux going that direction? Well, stable, if you notice, I do a release once a week, right? Yeah. And then I do stable releases for every release that Linus uses. So those are good, solid kernels that people use and rely on. The old enterprise model of sticking with one kernel for three years yeah. um, and heavily backporting patches and what to it, right. I think that I think that model, yeah, the RHEL model, the SLES model, I mean, I supported and did that work for years at SUSE. Um, I think that model's wrong. I, I don't think that's the right way to go forward. I think you need to be working with the upstream kernel. Um, and if you even look, SUSE and Oracle have adopted that model. They, For their their enterprise update kernels, they update to the latest version and move forward better than backporting stuff. Oracle's come out and said, hey, you guys are really doing a good job. You are not breaking things. You, The kernel community made the rule that we're not going to have regressions. We're going to fix problems. And things are going to continue to work that previously worked, and we're not going to have break user space APIs. Mm -hmm. One of the things we doubled down on in 2015 is our live events. I really realized that it was something that the Linux Action Show could go and try to exclusively capture for you. That's something you wouldn't find anywhere else online, not in a blog, not in another podcast. We would go on location and get the stories for you. So we did a lot of on-location stuff in 2015, and these next couple of clips are going to reflect a couple of my favorites, not all of them, but a couple of my favorite moments, um, including uh, a very interesting moment. I was just looking at my notes that I made uh, earlier when I was going through all of these. You know, there was a big trend this year, a huge trend this year, and it's a trend that none of us want to acknowledge because we don't know what the hell it means as Linux users. It makes us very uncomfortable. So I'll tell you about that and how I think this interview we had at Linux Fest Northwest perfectly summarizes some of those tensions. First, though, I want to tell you about our friends at DigitalOcean. They've been sponsoring Linux Action Show for a while now, I believe for all of 2015. Isn't that something, to have a company that believes in, in this podcast, a show talking about Linux, and they know that this audience is the exact market that they want to reach? That is really something, and I appreciate DigitalOcean's support of the Linux Action Show. But more than that, thanks you guys out there for supporting our sponsors by visiting DigitalOcean's website, and more than ever, using our promo code LASTDIGITAL so you get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is the best way for you to get a Linux rig up in the cloud in no time. They have crazy fast SSDs, 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor. They're using KVM as the virtualization software, all running on top of Linux rigs. They have data centers in Singapore, New York, San Francisco, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto. Really nice data centers. You can see some of their data center porn on their Instagram and Google Plus pages. They have an incredible, incredible interface. Best interface I have seen in all of my years of doing IT. I've never seen an interface like this to manage a worldwide network of virtual servers. Nothing like this. Deploy open source applications with a single click. You can choose your own distribution. They've got Ubuntu, CentOS, Debian, Fedora, CoreOS which you just heard Greg talk about, and FreeBSD. They got all of that up on DigitalOcean. One-click application deployments to some of your favorite things like Cassandra, Docker, the LAMP stack, MediaWiki, WordPress, Ruby on Rails, all of the stuff and more that you would expect, one-click deployments. And for anything that doesn't, really good tutorials. But the pricing, it's only $5 a month, and you can get started in less than 55 seconds. Just use our promo code LASTDIGITAL for $5 a month. You get 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. If you've had a chance this year, 
to play around with Docker. I encourage you to send your Docker image up to your DigitalOcean droplet and put it in production. Just have some fun with that. If you've never had a chance to play with SyncThing or OwnCloud, or if you want to really have that final implementation where your system's not going down and you can let your family, friends, or business rely on it, go to DigitalOcean. Just use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and get a $10 credit and support this show. And a really big thank you to DigitalOcean for their year-long support and more of the Linux Action Show. All right, so in or late, I guess it was late April, we went to Linux Fest Northwest 2015. We had a chance to talk with a lot of people. We did the live stream thing. We streamed a whole bunch of content. And one of the folks who stopped at our booth was an employee of Microsoft. But before he was an employee at Microsoft, he was a contributor to Debian. In fact, he's one of the guys who brought Nginx to Debian. So this is somebody who's a Linux user first, but works in the lion's den. And you got to agree with me. This whole Microsoft embracing open source has been a very interesting trend. Before we talked to him, this was before the Visual Studio Code releases. This is before they moved their stuff up to GitHub for .NET. But it was obviously something in the air. Microsoft has some interest with Linux. He sat down with the boot at the booth with us, and we talked about what it's like for a Debian contributor to work at Microsoft. Here you go. If you mind putting the headphones on, that way you can hear us okay, and we'll be able to hear you. Uh, so we have our next guest, and uh, now uh, are you? You're not. Are you actually with Microsoft, or are you with the Debian project? I do both. You do both. So you work at Microsoft. Is that yes. a recent uh, development? No, I've been with Microsoft since uh, 2010. All right. So Jose Miguel, right? Yes. Welcome to Linux Action Show. It's great to have you here. I've, so I, I know I've heard your name online many times, and uh, so can you tell the audience a little about what you do for the Debian project and Microsoft? Sure. So I've um, been working with Debian uh, since 2005 or so. Um, I decided to join as a developer uh, around 2007. I started with XMMS. Um, cool. And then uh, I brought Nginx to Debian. Now there's a team behind it. Yeah. I've been doing some other stuff in Debian. I have some other packages there. Um, uh, special interest on Perl programming. Uh, and also developing local communities when I was based out of Latin America. Hmm. Um, and then 2010, I joined Microsoft to do open source strategy, and I moved here uh, to the uh, Pacific Northwest Washington State. Yeah. So, uh, as a as a Linux user, what made you decide to take a job at Microsoft? Were you trepidatious about that, or was it seem did it seem like a slam dunk at the time? It seemed like a challenge, and it still is. <laughs> um, Really? Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting to be having these conversations, not just generally about open source, but specifically about Debian. Um, mm -hmm. When I moved to the U.S., I realized, you know, uh, uh, the realities in Latin America where Debian is something that is considered broadly across the board by customers um, is not like that here. You know, you have a, a stronger RPM. Uh, right community right. and there you know if you don't want to pay for for your Linux then you have CentOS or right. Fedora and, uh, you have Ubuntu out there that's pretty strong too over here. Co correct but that's that's more that's been more of a recent development yeah, so yeah. you know part of my uh, I do a lot of things with regards to open source at Microsoft but part of uh, you know one of the things I enjoy the most is talking about Debian uh, talking about the APT talking about sure. uh, package development it's interesting because Debian being a non-commercial distribution seems like it wouldn't naturally get a lot of attention inside Microsoft. Yeah, it's um, so, so let me start by saying that customers want it, therefore, you know, ah. we'll do it. Uh, but it poses some challenges because Microsoft's uh, uh, used to working with partners to get things done. Right, yeah, who do they mm -hmm. interface with? And, Correct, yeah. and, you know, the, the canonical, you know, what's the canonical of the Debian space, mm -hmm. and you know, you, got, you have that kind of uh, uh, company for SUSE, for right. CentOS, right. et cetera, but you don't have it for Debian. Right. Um, 
However, there's strong community uh, demand as well, and you'll see it on uh, BM Depot, for example, which is where Azure community Azure users bring community images. Yeah, oh, okay. uh, so you'll see a bunch of data and stuff there as well. Hmm. So uh, what is that? So you started you started really before Microsoft was publicly talking very much about open source and Linux. I mean, they were, but maybe still in somewhat of a negative connotation. Really, it was sort of transitioning when you joined, but. How is that watching that from the inside? Have you been? Do you see a big change from the inside? Because it seems like a change from the outside. Yeah. So a lot of people uh, tell me, look, you have a fifth of your cloud customers today using Linux. So you have a story, and then you can, you know, go and talk about Linux and open source more freely. What did you talk about five years ago? Uh, the mm. conversation was about standards. Uh, it was about document format. If you remember the entire yes. OpenXML yeah. ODF <clears throat> discussion of uh, 2007 or so, right? And then after that discussion, you know, OpenXML was made an, an, an ISO standard. Yet the Office 2007 service back to and all the the future versions of Office came to support ODF as well. And mm. today, you know, if you, uh, you get a new computer Windows 8, you'll get Warpad, for example, with ODF support. Yeah. So, you know, the easiest way to open uh, an, an open office, or LibreOffice-produced document today in Windows is a Microsoft Word product. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting. So, yeah, the conversation has been evolving. We didn't have Azure back then. Yeah. Then we had, like, this Azure thing, which was really past first, and you yeah. had to use Visual Studio to package your application. There was some PHP support, but it wasn't really right. what the customers wanted. Right. Then there was the VMs, and now there's this broad thing where, you know, uh, you can be consuming machine learning solutions in the cloud using R and Python. It, it seems, seems normal. It seems like uh, in it, when it comes to Microsoft's uh, adoption of an implementation of Azure and Linux, it, it, it almost seems like Microsoft has moved unfathomably fast in a way that I've never seen the company move before, so I think the rest of the public is sitting up going, nah, this can't be real. Well, Because uh, Microsoft doesn't move that fast, they don't change on a dime like that, they wouldn't just change their tune like that, that's that's not how it happens. Yeah. Big companies like that don't it's, change. It's only been just a couple of years, um, you know, and, and you talk about you talk about Ubuntu being, a, you know, a, a recent project, right? And that's, you know, we're talking, what, 10 years <laughs> or so? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that t t in some ways, I'm happy to hear that because if you consider Ubuntu to be a recent project, that means that you've obviously been in line with Linux for much longer than that, right? Yeah, well, the credit for the pace of innovation is not Microsoft, it's open source. You know, it's there, the, there, there's just a lot of innovation in the open source software and open, open hardware space, open standard space, open cloud space, etc. Right. that it forces companies and customers to make decisions uh, more right. rapidly. Yeah, that's very interesting. So is is there very much open source behind Azure? I mean, besides the operating systems that run on it, is there, I, I assume it's probably mostly like a Hyper-V platform, but is there some open source that orchestrates Azure to some degree that you know of? Well, there's value in uh, abstracting the operating system and the hypervisor sure. layer for customers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what we think it's, it's attracting open source uh, practitioners to Azure is the fact that you can go beyond the VM. So you have the VM, you can do whatever you want in your Linux VM. But you can also get grab from things that you need. Let's say yeah. you need Active Directory. In the past, oh, you would have to roll Windows Server, right. install primary domain controller, use right. Kerberos and Ellip. Now yeah. you have Azure AD. It's SAML, OAuth, WS Federation. Active use Directory it from your is, application. Just, is just a service that you can Yeah, have. and it's a web. You know, you don't have to use those protocols anymore. You don't have the, the, the compatibility issues of the past right. and whatnot. So that's what's, what's really exciting. When, when you talk about open source in Azure, I see, well, it's, it's beyond the VM. Uh, the 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 layer where it runs is still going to be abstracted, and it's going to be a highly optimized version of Windows Server, Hyper-V, Nano right. Server, the things that are coming in the future. Right, yeah. um, 
but but there's those open source hooks across all the components of the platform today. Um, so going back to Linux and at Microsoft a little bit, uh, do you run Linux at your desktop at Microsoft? I do. And how, is that very common? Like you say, there's a handful of people, or there are hundreds of people. How, how what's that picture like? It's somehow common. You know, people think uh, you know we all use Explorer and and you know and, we're forced yeah. to use Bing, etc. Uh, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty much whatever you need to get the job done, as long as it's uh, reasonable. Uh, yeah. There's a lot so of, there's a strong Mac community, uh, and there is a, a growing Linux community. And if you're going to well. run Linux, is there like a Microsoft, like we want you to run Ubuntu this, or is it whatever you're comfortable with? Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, there's no Microsoft Linux if that's sure, the question. Yeah, no. um, but uh, most people use Ubuntu. Yeah. Uh, also, sorry, it's you know when you talk about Yammer, Skype. Nokia, all yeah. those companies that came into market, they're right. all Linux users, right? right? And yeah, they yeah. all have Ubuntu in their desktops right. or any, you know. So some of those companies Linux. came in running Linux. Correct. So how do you deal with the applications that are specifically written for Win or for Windows? So for example, Microsoft Office, there's no Linux port, right? And I would assume that with inside a company that makes an Office suite, you would be using that Office suite. So you're telling me that on your desktop working at Microsoft, you can't use the products that Microsoft makes. How does that work in, inside of the, I mean, it must make kind of difficult to, to email documents back and forth? Well, it's all browser. And so, um, you know, obviously Exchange and Outlook, it's a, it's a, a browser application. Okay. But even PowerPoint, Excel, and Word are browser applications that yeah. run on okay. Linux, and you know it's actually supported for our customers as well. Hmm. Okay. So w we do a lot of that. There are challenges. Um, so Link, it's a it's a tool we use for uh, unified communications. Yes. You know, codecs and and support that's specific to Windows and Mac. Right. Uh, there's a lot of you know you can use your phone, your desk phone, you can use your cell phone to 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 work around it. Uh -huh. um, but there are new versions of of uh, Link that we're not calling Skype for business, uh, there is that uh, kind of like browser support for rich mm. audio video conferencing. Okay. Interesting. So do you see Microsoft in the future getting to a point where they say, listen, because open source is getting so important to us and because people are using it on the desktop uh, at Microsoft, now it's time to, to maybe get some of those applications over, like in not just a web port, but actually getting like native applications? Do you see that happening in the future maybe? Well, Still, you know, numbers still come in, and there was a recent uh, U.S. government survey, I think, on what's being used in government desktops here in the U.S., and sure. said, you know, it kind of mirrored what we know. It's like 2% of the PC market, etc. So there's still, I think, going to be a lot of atten attention put to those numbers. Uh -huh. um, however, there's no reason why, if it's working in the browser, there's no reason why yeah. you should cripple it for Linux or for any other platform. You should be a rich experience for it. So I, I do expect more of that. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that uh, uh, you know acknowledging those Linux users uh, is something that's happening today, um, and you'll see it. You know, you're seeing more it in more. the phone, for example, mm. right? Like you know, Office for Android and that type of things. Yeah, mm -hmm. there are some building basic basic blocks that need to be in place. .NET needs to be able to run on Linux, and we need to have a compiler with a mm. decent uh, framework and all yeah. that, that stuff. So that stuff's happening now, really. That stuff is happening now. You know, the, the builds are passing for Linux in uh, a bunch of .NET projects, and uh, we expect the Mono project, it's a strong partner, to kind of pick up on those on those pieces we are open sourcing as well. Cool. Uh, and we kind of rely on the community. Those news are more exciting to the .NET community, sure, yeah, the yeah, market yeah, community, yeah, than yeah. the rest of the open source community, yeah, yeah. But, but it's a... It's, a, it's, a, it's an important infrastructure piece, though. Correct. Well, is there anything else you want to touch on? Look, uh, we're really glad to be here. Uh, this is a local event that's a really yeah. an institution. Yeah, it's a great one too. It's great. Yeah, we love it, and um, 
we're investing more in you know in, in this specific Northwest region, uh, attending the the events that cool. might not be technology specific. It might not be a chef thing or it might not be a Docker thing. Right. It's a general Linux and open source thing. We want to be there as well. Cool. As long as we're welcome, we'll be here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for stopping by. It was a great chat. Fascinating to hear all the work you guys are doing. So keep up the great work thank with you. Debian and Microsoft. Yes. Thanks absolutely. very much. Take Thanks care. a lot. Thanks. Now coming up in this clip from episode 379 of the Linux Action Show, we try to do something we've never done in nearly 10 years of last being on the air. We tried to capture what it's like to be at a con, not to report, not to do interviews, but to report on the experience. So I guess reporting in a sense, but the experience of being at a convention. What would it be like for you to drop like the thousand bucks it costs to go to LinuxCon, plus flight, plus your hotel, to go there and actually walk around the, t the town that it's at, walk around and experience the unique aspects of that town, go into the conference and see what it's like to be at the conference, and how do you do that in a show that's primarily downloaded by audio listeners? That was a challenge we took on in this clip. I don't know how successful it was in the long run. Looking back at it from a production standpoint, and it was in episode 379, and it was something that we pre-produced before we rolled the, the whole episode. We went, Noah and I went, we got audio, we walked around the streets of Seattle, we interviewed people, and we realized, holy crap, there's a massive trend here. And if you were to fly out here, this is what you would experience. And we tried to package all of that up, and I'd be curious now to hear what you think of it. my home turf in Seattle, Washington, North America's largest Linux convention, you can't help but notice a trend. Containers are a big deal. A trend that's changing the way the world thinks about Linux. Docker is an exciting buzzword and a lot of products are being built around it. In this particular conference, we've also, an awful lot of the focus on things that we're talking about is containers, virtualization, uh, the, the application stacks that are running on top of the kernel. Uh, why is the kernel still so important? Uh, we run all the applications inside a Docker container, which is cool. What we provide is a management uh, control plane in which you can orchestrate your containers very easily. We are big supporters of Docker internally. We use it for our own uh, internal infrastructure. Bamboo now has a, a first-class Docker support as, as a, a target for continuous integration and deployment. Containers, we think pretty strong, feel pretty strongly that containers are the right way to think about deploying software, um, and we want them to be ubiquitous. My first LinuxCon experience, it was pretty cool that it was here in Seattle, Washington. No, I know it's not your first LinuxCon by far. No, it's not, but it, it, it was by hands down, at least from a, a venue standpoint, my favorite. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, we're going to get into the whole story of uh, LinuxCon, but we should probably start with Seattle itself, which is really, truly part of the experience of going to LinuxCon this year. And uh, I wanted to take Noah to Pike Place Market, right. somewhere you'd never been. We wanted to go out and get a little air from the conference. And on our way down to Pike Place Market, I think you got a little good taste of uh, Seattle. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Oh, crap, all over people. 
delicious yellow peach right here. I just had some. It was amazing. No, that was a yellow nectarine. Oh. You got to try this. <laughs> so when you walk around as an attendee, you have your name badge on. Right. Well, so well, let's back up. Let's start with the street performers. So one thing I really like about bigger cities, <clears throat> Seattle had this too, was is that you have street performers. Oh, yeah. So in a small city like Grand Forks. Yeah. The best that you get is people just hold up a sign and say, give me money. Oh, so, <laughs> no. so here, so, so they here, have to step up their game. Here, I know, more competition. <laughs> I know. And, and so, and so, and then not only do you have competition, like yeah. it, the, the street performers that I have seen in some cities, like yeah. they're not very talented, right. but these people, they're good, you know, there was a, it was an electric bass <clears throat> and an electric uh, violin. Yeah. I got to say, like, uh, I grabbed some of the music, uh, and I thought it was like, it was actually like legitimately like amazing music that I wanted to share with people when we got back. Uh, I had uh, one that uh, I, I could play for you here on the show, and this is while we're just walking by with my microphone. This is playing on the street. Walking around, Noah leans over to me and says, "Like, man, do you do you smell that? Uh, I think we, I think I smell fish." We are in the search for fish. Come on, Noah. If you're smelling fish, it's not good fish. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be able to smell it. And see, that's one of the things that Pike Place Market is known for is fresh seafood. And so they throw like, around, by the way. Well, yes, that's true too. But I'm just they thinking almost a, they almost clocked a lady in her head. Yeah, that like some and she's like ducks in it. Some fish, fish goes some, flying. Some fish splatter like landed yeah, in her face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the fish they had they had cut the fish open. Yeah. So like it's like it had like wings, and the fish was like opening up and like like right over this lady's head, and then the guy like catches it out of the yeah. air. And it is crowded too. Like we're pushing elbow to elbow to people and I, I'm like boy if he's smelling fish this is not a good thing and no. I, I wanted your experience to the Seattle area to be good yeah. so we walked around it was really crowded we got some fish and chips and I was like alright well this isn't quite going the way I want let's go back up to the conference and uh, let's do some interviews so we walked back up to the Sheraton Hotel and one of the things that really struck us was I mean it's called Linux Con and also Container Con mm-hmm. and man isn't that the truth one of the main focuses of all the exhibitors and a lot of the talks is containers and Docker specifically. And our first interview was with a uh, sort of a proto example of a lot of the boosts there. A lot of the boosts could be summarized as vendors that are providing solutions to maintain containers under Linux. I'm here at the Stack Engine booth, and I love their slogan here. It's Container Operations Management Simplified. And containers seem to be a pretty complicated business. There's a lot of people here talking about containers, so how does Stack Engine solve that complicated problem? Well, from its early design, we wanted to make Stack Engine easy to use and easy to deploy. So, for example, what we provide is a management uh, control plane in which you can orchestrate your containers very easily. You can install us on one host or multiple hosts within minutes, compose your applications and launch them or schedule them, and we automatically deploy them. Sort of abstracting uh, Docker away, but making it very easy to get your Docker containers up and running. Hmm. So is Stack Engine something that runs on-premise? Is it something that runs on your, your infrastructure? How does that work? Well, we run anywhere you need us to. So a lot of people deploy us behind a firewall because they have security needs. And or they deploy us behind the firewall and in a cloud, in a hybrid environment. We run wherever we need to run and bring that all back all of that back in one view. All right, so uh, where would people go to find out more about Stack Engine? Well, it's easy enough to just go up to stackengine.com. We've got a free one-host version for developers, and we also uh, have a free trial for an unlimited experience of Stack Engine. So Stack Engine's kind of new, but, like, the whole range was there. Uh, You got a chance to talk to Atlassian. I did. Well-known company. 
And uh, it didn't take too long for you to notice. They're kind of all talking about Docker, too. So you uh, you mentioned Docker. I noticed that this entire hallway up and down LinuxCon is is all containerization. Uh, you know, uh, Tell me a little bit about why you think that containerization is, is taking off in such a big way and why they have such a presence here at LinuxCon. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Docker's, uh, so, so containers have been around for a yeah. while. I think what Docker really made possible was, was it made the tool chain easy enough to use that, that more and more people can do it. Mm -hmm. And what I think Docker is uh, really helping support is this architectural idea of microservices. So breaking applications down into smaller pieces makes them easier to develop, makes them easier to deploy. So I think that's a lot about why people are very interested in it. And you guys, uh, you guys here are, are playing a big role in that and are really concentrating on that? So Atlassian has been part of the uh, Docker community for, for a while by uh, helping with their, like, kind of get information out about how to use Docker. Uh, we are big supporters of Docker internally. We use it for our own uh, internal infrastructure. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Bamboo now has a, a first-class Docker support as, as a, a target for continuous integration and deployment. Now, be honest with me, Noah. Did you get a little burned out on all the Docker stuff? You know, um... I, I guess a little bit, um, at, but at the same time, it, the, it, uh, we knew going into it that the that the conference, the theme of they the year theme. or whatever was was Docker was Container uh, ContainerCon. So yeah. so we knew that that was that was going to be they were going to have a big footprint. Um, I guess in in past years it wasn't as prevalent. Like that like that mm -hmm. was kind of like an overreaching theme, mm -hmm. and then but you still had yeah. a, a bunch of other exhibits. But I, in this particular case, like everyone was exhibiting uh, container or container management, yeah. and then on top of that, even the people that weren't found ways to shoehorn their solutions into containers. That's exactly what I was going to say, is even the boost didn't start out that way. And uh, not necessarily in a bad way either, but many, 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 many of the sessions, in fact, I would say the predominant theme of the sessions at LinuxCon, so not just the vendors, was also Docker and containers. So they either would say Docker directly, or they would mm. say containers more generically. And one of the folks that's very, very, very focused on this problem is CoreOS. And CoreOS said something. The guy speaking for CoreOS and the view of the project that really struck me. Essentially, if CoreOS completes their vision, Linux doesn't really have a necessary role in the container platform. And finally, you know, we think containers, we think pretty strong, feel pretty strongly that containers are the right way to think about deploying software, um, and we want them to be ubiquitous. So we want the standard to be as agnostic to, to platform, to OS and architecture uh, as possible. At CoreOS, we're very much focused on Linux, but we want we think that application containers um, can be defined in, in a sufficiently portable way um, so that there's no reason they can't be used on other operating systems. So what he's kind of saying is if we do our job right, them being CoreOS, we being CoreOS, if we do our job right, we don't really have to depend on Linux to develop, or develop containers to distribute software. And that... I don't know how that made me feel when I heard that, to be honest. What, what's yeah. your first impression? Well, so my first impression is uh, companies do not move quickly. Companies move very slow, especially <laughs> at large scale mm -hmm. and especially uh, industry. And so you have an entire uh, sect of industry that has been built up around Linux at the, at the server space. You know, we it's can true. go back and forth about the practicality uh, or the practical ramifications of using Linux on the desktop. But really, there's no argument to be made that Linux completely, wholeheartedly dominates the server market space full stop. Right. And so... I have watched companies that have difficulty moving from one version of Red Hat sure. to another version yeah. of Red Hat, even though it's the same distro on the same server running the same software. That's, but that's the very, that is the very problem that will drive the need for containers. See, that's the very problem mm -hmm. the containers solve. And once you solve that problem of delivering applications, the host operating system 
becomes less relevant because by very definition, mm -hmm. you're taking out that middle layer, which is the OS, and you're just writing on top of the kernel. And now your focus goes on deploying applications and not maintaining the whole stack. I agree. But you still have to have a core operating system and you have to have a very, very compelling reason to change that core operating system. Otherwise, the cost just becomes too high. They have all these people that are, they have all these people that are trained to install a specific core operating system. They have all yeah. these people that are trained to maintain a core operating system. And most importantly, they already have these core operating systems in place. See, all those things I think are reasons to get, to minimize it. So you don't have to worry about the training. So you don't have to worry about people that know how to I use agree. it. I agree. So. I agree. And I agree, but they're still not going to change. Uh, they're still not going to get rid of that core yeah. operating system. Yeah. They'll just scale it down and put everything on well, uh, Greg KH, a long, long time uh, critical contributor to the Linux kernel, a uh, former uh, guest of the Linux Action Show, uh, he was asked, why does the Linux kernel still matter? And I'm curious what you have, what do you take on his answer? So at this particular conference, we've also, an awful lot of the focus on things that we're talking about is containers, virtualization, uh, the, the application stacks that are running on top of the kernel. Uh, why is the kernel still so important? <laughs> or do, does everyone... It, why is it appropriate to be talking about all these things at the same conference? Why, why? He laughs. He laughs. But mm -hmm. I, his answer is his answer. Is the foundation important of its building? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you think containers run on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you it's think like the world a basement. You don't yeah. see it. Yeah. Yeah. At you some point, you actually it's have to touch the hardware. Right. We're, <laughs> we're the plumbers. We're the plumbing. It's the low-level plumbing like the plumbers. If the foundation's weak, so is everything else on top of it. Yes. A pretty solid argument. You have to run that on something. You have to support the hardware. You have to interface with the networking stack. Mm -hmm. A pretty solid argument. However, I think you could flip it on its head, and I think you could say it's also a little short-sighted. It's a little short-sighted that containerization makes that kernel a little less important. It could be the BSD kernel for all the container cares. And if you look at the kernel group's history of understanding Docker, I would argue that they have sometimes missed its importance. In fact, when C groups was first introduced to the Linux kernel, I think they missed its importance. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with it, C groups, which is abbreviated for control groups, is a Linux kernel feature that limits and accounts for and isolates the resource usage of CPU, memory, disk, I.O., and network from a collection of processes. So essentially, it's critical to containerization because what a container really is is it's these groups of processes are isolated from the rest of all the other processes and resources on the system. It's critical to how containerization works. It's the key technology there. And I think in this next clip, it shows the kernel team sort of failed to get it. And Linus was just inter was interview interviewed at uh, LinuxCon, and they asked him what he thought about Docker. And his response was sort of similar, was, oh, I don't care, I just think about the kernel. I just, all I worry about is I just worry about the kernel. But then how can you tell if you're being made irrelevant? And I will play this clip and let's talk more about it. Is there anything you can think of that we merged thinking it was not a big deal and then has become a big issue that we've had to go back and revisit? Uh, I don't want to point fingers. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. Yeah. That, like sneak in and we don't know. Well, let's put this one, C groups. C groups came in in this odd corner. We're like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. We're all going to ignore it. And it took over the world. <laughs> and we all had to deal with it. And we all were like, la, 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 I don't care about it. And we all had to bite the bullet and take care of it. Our next clip is what happens when a couple of longtime Linux users review Windows 10. We get to review a whole plethora of things in the Linux Action Show. We never really get to review Windows itself. So when two longtime Linux users took a moment to review Windows 10, 
Well, let's just say there were sparks, there was fire, and there was definitely some smoke. Before we get into that, I want to tell you about my phone, my service provider, and who I think would make a great service provider for you. That's Ting. Go to last.ting.com. Go to last.ting.com to support this show and get a $25 discount off your first device or a Ting-compatible device because they got lots of compatibility with their CDMA and GSM networks. Now, I've been using Ting for more than just 2015. In fact, I think I'm coming now in on three years of using Ting. Can you believe that? Three years of using Ting. And we did the math because they have a savings calculator right there on their website, and you can use it too. I'm saving $2,000 in two years. I've got three lines, you guys. Three lines. I got an HTC One, an iPhone 5, and a Samsung S6. And I'm thinking about potentially adding a Nexus to that. I've also in the past had an Evo 4G, uh, which was on CDMA. I have had a Nexus 4. I've had a Nexus, uh, uh, um, I guess I've had two Nexus 5s, all on the Ting network. And it, it sounds, it sort of sounds excessive. It sounds like, oh, you know, you're spending a lot of money. And that's because that's sort of the old paradigm of the way that mobile was set up by the duopolies who wanted to screw you. See, Ting is mobile with no BS. It's no contract, no determination fee, and you only pay for what you use. You only pay for what you use with no contract. And the phones are unlocked, so you own them outright. So if I get a phone, say, a year ago, like the Nexus 5, I can give it to Rikai. I can give it to Noah. I can take it back. I can say, I can loan it out to somebody else. Meantime, I'm In the meantime, I'm not changing, breaking contracts. I'm not, like, renewing anything. It's just simply porting it all around using the Ting dashboard. They have an incredible dashboard that lets you manage all of the Ting goodies. There's some secret sauce to Ting. One of it is their fanatical customer support. The other is the way they're able to leverage CDMA and GSM networks and bring you wholesale pricing that is like nobody else. Ting is an incredible value. It's a flat $6 for the line and just your usage on top of that. And I think that's a big reason why in 2015, the competitors like Ting made a big dent in the industry. So Matthew W. on Facebook asks, why is it that Ting and other new carriers are doing so well in the current industry? So that's a very flattering question. Thank you, uh, and and uh, and thank you for my uh, uh, you know my small carrier brethren like uh, like Consumer Cellular and Republic who we like a lot. Uh, I mentioned uh, I mentioned them because the three of us just did very well in the uh, in the Consumer Reports survey that came out recently. But um, but I think it's I think it's a different kind of time we're in, and I, I think we kind of got lucky launching when we did. I think it used to be. Uh, a few years ago that uh, two things. One, um, it was all about big budgets. That's how people found out about providers, whoever was doing uh, big, huge ad campaigns. Uh, and now with the internet, uh, we kind of go seeking our own information hey, and our own endorsements and recommendations. And uh, it doesn't matter who's got you know sponsorships and billboards plastered all over the place. And second, I think that um, that we're, we're living in a world now where, uh, where people are starting to get comfortable with uh, moving beyond the, the best known providers into little guys who seem to be doing things uh, smarter and better. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen banking and, and uh, uh, mortgages and car rentals and, and these uh, insurance, you know, very important services where, where normally you never would have taken a risk beyond uh, the key providers and the largest, most stable companies, uh, all of a sudden getting challenged by these little guys that are just doing things in a, in a more innovative way. And so I think everybody started to get the hang of uh, um, uh, using their own sort of radar over, over who's credible, who's smart, who's trustworthy. And I think we're, we're benefiting from that trend. Absolutely. Go to last.ting.com to support this show. Get yourself a discount and learn more. 
Last.ting.com. You can also follow them on YouTube. Uh, they're on uh, Facebook slash Ting. They're on TingFTW on Google+. They're also on Reddit, RTing. There's a big community out there. Go check it out. Last.ting.com. And big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. You guys really have a great service. Also, go check out their $9 SIM cards. It can pretty much turn anything into a data-connected device. All right, so let's shift gears and go into Last 376, where Noah and I reviewed Windows 10. I got a couple of interesting production notes for you. This is an episode that not a lot of people on YouTube got a chance to see because it was pulled very quickly off of YouTube. Maybe there was some Microsoft secret agents in there. I don't know, but it got off of YouTube really quick. So this is a chance for our YouTube audience to probably see a portion of the Linux Action Show. They didn't get a chance to see this year. But also, you have to remember that when we recorded this review, the hype was so real for Windows 10. You could taste it. It was thick. You could cut it with a butter knife. And so this review was an antidote to all that hype to say, wait a second, just take a little bit of a detached look at Windows 10 and where it's at, and you can see this is clearly not a product that is competitive with today's desktop Linux. This Wednesday, I think it was, was the general public availability of Windows 10. And I, I, I just being a uh, kind of a noob, I just assumed that meant I could go to the store and buy a copy of Windows 10. Uh, and I have to tell you, I walked out of Best Buy a little bit uh, disappointed. I went over there and I, I captured because I was, I, was, I was a little dumbfounded by my conversation. So I'm just walking out of Best Buy after trying to buy Windows 10 and I'm discovering something rather interesting. Even though Windows 10 launched, it's not available in the store. I have a couple of options. I can buy Windows 8 and then go home and download Windows 10 and upgrade my PC or I can buy a computer and the Geek Squad will upgrade it for me to Windows 10, or I can bring my computer in, buy their Windows 10 image, have them deploy it on my machine, but I don't actually get to keep it or get a box copy or a thumb drive. There's no way for me to actually come home with a version of Windows 10 today. I can only buy Windows 8, and they don't know when that's gonna change. So instead, I bought a thumb drive, and I'm going to download the ISO and flash it myself. How hard could that be? What could go wrong? I figured, Noah, what could go wrong? So I downloaded the Windows 10 ISO, I got DD Rescue ready, and I went to work. Okay, so extreme excitement is currently happening right now. I've gotten the USB thumb drive actually plugged into my USB port. Look at me, like I'm an advanced user. And I'm using DD Rescue right now to write the Windows 10 ISO. Can you see it there up in the corner? Ooh, I'm writing the Windows 10 ISO up here in my office above the studio to a thumb drive. Once this completes, I'm gonna take it down to a machine, I'm gonna grab somebody who's working down there, smack him across her fa his face, I'm not gonna say who, take that machine and put Windows 10 on it. And we're gonna see how it goes. I'm a little nervous. Now, it actually ended up being a laptop rampage. I had to go on a laptop rampage. You yeah. would think this wouldn't be so bad. So first of all, uh, my DD uh, rescue image didn't work at all. I don't know why. When I, when I tried to boot off of it, I got invalid partition. Um, so I ended up having to grab somebody else's machine who had an old copy of Windows on there, downloaded this program called Rufus, and then used Rufus to write the thumb drive images. I don't know why that worked, but it did. Then I went down a series of different machines trying to get it installed on. The first machine I went to was a Bonobo Extreme. It's my go-to rig. I put a lot of test stuff on there. We have, a, we have a Bonobo Extreme dedicated just to testing here in the studio. For whatever reason, this has never happened, but for whatever reason, Windows 10 installer did not detect the SSD drive in the Bonobo. Now, 
I've never had a version of Windows that's done this. I've never had a Linux distribution that's done this, or even a BSD that's done this. They've all always detected the drive. There's a 120 gigabyte Samsung SSD in there. But for whatever reason, the Windows 10 installer didn't see it. So then, I decided I would try it on an XPS 13. I backed up the XPS 13, and I installed Windows 10 on it. However, Noah, <laughs> what I continued to run into was a series of errors after errors. I captured one right here. Uh, for example, when I tried to install the sound driver, every time the system booted up, I got a bunch of DLL errors on, uh, up in my face, and I had to go into the task manager, which is now where you disable running programs, and I had to disable the uh, Realtek drivers from trying to start a boot. Um, then I had to go over to Dell's website and try to have it go through and detect my drivers using Internet Explorer, and then it downloaded a bogus driver for me, which really what I realized is I first then had to do a, a BIOS update, and then Windows Update did eventually manage to download it, but it couldn't download the Synaptic driver for whatever reason. It could never successfully download the Synaptic driver, so the touchpad was totally crazy. So I bailed on the XPS 13, I went and grabbed Angela's Yoga, and I backed up her Yoga, and now I've installed Windows 10 on her Yoga. But now I don't have certain, for whatever reason, and everything works except for things like no scrolling. I don't have two-finger scrolling for mm -hmm. some reason. You know, those kinds of things don't work. But other than that, I mean, it's been, it has been a process to get this, this operating system installed. So my install was way easier than yours. I didn't have nearly that, that much trouble. It, it, it probably doesn't hurt the fact that I own an IT company. So I went into our big drawer of disks that Dell sends us every year and pulled out the latest Windows 8, put that in the computer, installed that on a, on a spare laptop that I had, and then uh, oh, you I, am not, I am not wiping my data off uh, to try this piece of crap. And put the disk in, uh, installed Windows 8, and then, uh, yeah, I did the upgrade route. Although I, am, I, I, I did become aware that uh, Microsoft Store actually has Windows 10 for uh, purchase and download. Now, I can tell you when that became available, yeah. um, but you can buy it now. Yeah, uh, and how you actually get there is kind of funny. Like, uh, you, it's not, you can't just go to the store and find it. Uh, the way you get there is, uh, let's see if we can, let's see if we'll, we'll try it right, live right now. Let's see, uh, this is an unactivated copy of Windows 10 right here. Now, if I wanted to activate this copy of Windows 10, I would go to the new settings screen, which looks a lot like KDE 5. This, everybody just take a minute and look at that and tell me, this, that's, not, that's not plasma. That's Windows 10. Uh, now I'm going to go, see right here, Windows isn't activated. Activate Windows now. Now if I click this, this comes up. But see, I don't have a product key, and Windows isn't actually activated. So now, in the activation screen, I can now say go to store. And now when I go to store, I can then buy it for $200. But otherwise, I can't find this in the Windows 10 store. And so I did this, actually. I actually bought Windows 10 just for this frickin' review. And the reason why I had to do it is my next complaint with Windows 10. Windows 10, oh, and actually, I can show you. I can show you right now. So let's say uh, you found these white border, bordered windows extremely bright and atrocious, and they kind of hurt your eyes late at night, and you wanted to darken it up a little bit, right? That shouldn't be a big deal. So now you right-click, you go to Personalize, right? You go to Personalize here. You want to change your colors? Oh, you can't do that. You need to activate Windows before you can change your color. Sorry, that slider's been disabled. Oh, you want to change your background? Yep, can't change your background. Sorry, got to activate Windows. Now, here's the other fun thing, kids, is if you sync your profile from, like, your previous wait, uh, Windows 8 installation and you have some really crappy low-resolution background because it was an old computer and now you're on a 4K display, well, guess what? It's going to take that old background image and it won't let you change it. It just looks like crap on a 4K display unless you pay $200 to change your background. 
is one last wiggly niggly I have about Windows 10 is a very, very inconsistent end user experience and uh, for high DPI. Um, and this is something, again, I would absolutely ding a, a KDE or GNOME desktop for if they had inconsistent, you know, like if it looked weird. I, I, I've talked about it before. It's not unusual for me to comment on that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so I noticed it in Windows 10 quite a bit. And it might be a little hard to pick up here, but I grabbed a couple screenshots here. If you can tell a little bit, this is a... this. This the the text around this is blurry. You see, and the the X has a bunch of jaggies. I don't know if you can see it. I don't. Yeah. I, don't, I actually don't know how you. Maybe I just pinched a zoom. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I can pinch to zoom. So there you go. Now oh, if I yeah. zoom in, you can see that the the text and the, the OK box looks a little weird. The the graphic is a little odd. A lot of the uh, a lot of the things like Event Viewer and um, the Disk Management uh, uh, MMC and Air Screens and Installers, none of them are high DPI. So what you have now is you have Metro UIs that are with now with borders, which look pretty good. Then you have parts of the Windows desktop like Explorer, which are high DPI and look pretty good. And then you're constantly getting these weird UI elements that don't match the rest of the Windows theme and are not high DPI. And then you have some applications like Steam which are just completely egregious and the entire thing is low DPI and just looks like murder under uh, under Windows. And see, what Linux does differently is it just represents the application at its actual size. Mm -hmm. And what Windows is doing in the case of like a 4K display on the Dell XPS is it's actually zooming these, these windows up 250%. 250%. Yeah. You can imagine how crappy something looks when you digitally zoom it 250%. That's right. what Windows 10 is doing on 4K displays, and it's like all over the operating system. It's, it's all of the old bits of Windows that like they just like to pretend don't exist anymore, like, like some of the MMC snap-ins and, and Event Viewer and all that stuff that isn't new, isn't flashy, isn't selling Windows 10, just didn't get a lot of attention. But the end result is because Windows is so stuck in a traditional desktop legacy use case that you can't help but run into this stuff consistently on a high DPI display. And it, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's actually at the point where you have to kind of stop and kind of look and squint so that way you can read the text because the text is so blurry. Uh, my software, my preference for software was abysmal on Windows. I couldn't get the GIMP installed. I went to the GIMP's website. They have some like testing nightly version, but it's not, they, they put right in there that it's not a stable version. There is no like, there is no just, I want to download GIMP and install it. Couldn't find that. Um, and in fact, I, that I have a, I, th I have a screenshot there if, yeah, if that's interesting. But you can just go to the GIMP website and look. This just doesn't, doesn't seem to exist. Um, Vert Manager just wasn't available. So, this so for the last three days, I haven't been able to do any of my server management because there's just no way for me to install the Vert Manager server so I can't access the, the, the KVM servers. I, just, I could not get part of my work done. Every time I wanted to do something, couldn't do it on my laptop, I had, had to either go home or go into my office to get to a real operating system to do my work. Hmm. And that, that was frustrating. Um, <laughs> Audacity, I, I had a simple task. All I wanted to do was bring in a 30-minute uh, audio file that I had. I wanted to cut it in two and export two of them out, right? It's a very simple task. Now, this is on a core i7 with 16 gigs of RAM. This should be a breeze. And three different times, Audacity crashed. Now, maybe that's because... Uh, and This machine has only been in use for, what would you say, when, Wednesday or Thursday we decided to do this? Mm -hmm. So this has been like 48 hours. I've been so it's not like there's a ton of software and Windows has had its normal chance to cock itself up like what would happen if I ran it for a year. How tos are another area that we get to do a lot of every single year on the Linux Action Show. When you look back at nearly ten years, there is so many cool things we have covered. But the one we covered this year, I think not only made a big impact on the product that we covered's bottom line, 
but it was a really interesting insight into how Noah manages his day-to-day security, and I think it's something a lot of you guys thought was pretty great. Before we get into that, I want to mention Linux Academy. Linux Academy is a platform created by Linux and open source enthusiasts to teach other Linux and open source enthusiasts about Linux and all of the awesome technologies around it. So you've heard of other online learning platforms. Those are all really cool if you want to learn things not Linux, not open source. If you want to learn things about Linux, and anything that runs on Linux, then you probably want to go to a place designed, created, built by people who actually care about open source and Linux. That's the Linux Academy. The Linux Academy is a, is a site designed for Linux users who have high expectations, seven plus distributions you get to choose from. The courseware and the live servers that spin up on demand automatically adjust. They have a super badass VM infrastructure that spins up, that matches the courseware. Doesn't matter if it's AWS, doesn't matter if it's a Docker courseware, an OpenStack courseware, a Red Hat certified courseware, or or something where you're just doing Nginx on Ubuntu, the virtual environment spin up on demand, they give you an SSH login and you can use it in a real terminal like a human being. It is so cool because they have nearly 2,000 videos, self-paced courses with instructor help available on demand. Scenario-based labs where you really get hands-on experience with this stuff. You actually get hands-on experience and when you go to do it in the real world, it won't be your first time. You have the confidence to get it done. They have instructor help, which means if you get stuck, you have that lifeline. And one of the other things I think is really nice is they've started in integrating live evaluations in real time of how you're doing. So you don't have to wait till the end of the exam or the end of the course to see how you did. You can get feedback as you're doing it. And something else, a little secret, JB Community rocks Linux Academy. They are loaded with JB Community members. Go over to Linux Academy and check out some of the improvements. Do they have an announcement section? Just peruse what they've done in 2015. Super respectable. And one of the things I like about Linux Academy is they acknowledge that a portion of their audience has extremely high demands. So they've done everything they can to meet those. They've revamped their whole backend with a brand new CDN in 2015, HTML5 players, way more live events, improved content, graded server exercises, expanded content in all of the areas that have become more and more relevant in 2015. This is your go-to bet. So go to linuxacademy.com unplugged. Take advantage of the unplugged discount that we've had for a while now. We're now opening that up to the Linux Action Show audience members, and this is your opportunity to go there, get yourself a discount, which is a great discount, and support this show. Not only are you supporting the show, but you're supporting a great great vendor. Check out what they have. Go to linuxacademy.com tour to get a tour of all of the great features. Go to linuxacademy.com nuggets to find out what you could do even if you're very busy. Even if you're extremely busy, you can still get value out of Linux Academy. And if you've got some time, oh man, if you've got some time, I invite you to just dive in. linuxacademy.com unplug to support this show and get yourself a discount. Man, you know, a lot of the things we talk about in our how-to's, I mean, a lot of the things we talk about in our how a lot of the things we talk about in our how-tos, you can take up to the next level when you go get courses from Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring Linux Action Show. So, <laughs> I, I don't know. Some of you thought maybe it was too much. I, I think, I honestly, I'm not even joking. We got emails into the show where they thought there was a conspiracy theory that YubiKey had paid Noah to promote their product on the show. Not the case. When we, get, when we get paid to promote something, A, you know it's a promotion, and B, we only pick things we use anyways. 
Maybe YubiKey should have, because apparently, from what we, heard, what we heard from an insider, after this episode of Linux Action Show, they sold a whole bunch of YubiKeys, and we made a dent in their usage for Linux users. A lot of you got inspired by episode 373 of the Linux Action Show, SSH authentication with YubiKey. I, I, wanted to, I have a video from YubiKey about the YubiKey Nano, which is the device you use, right? I, I use two of them. I use the I use the the Neo uh, standard, which is the the standard looking YubiKey like the that has the, the Neo interface in, and yeah. then I also use the Nano Neo, which is okay. the little one that sticks out of the side of my laptop. I'm gonna just play. I'm just gonna play like a minute of the Nano, so that way people that are listening know what kind of hardware we're talking about. It's a really small unit that for you audio listeners goes almost like flush with the USB port here. I'll just play like a, just a moment of it. Nano. <laughs> The YubiKey Nano is a standard YubiKey in a very small form factor. About the size of a quarter. When you insert the YubiKey Nano into a USB port, it almost disappears. This is useful for laptops, for example, when you need to authenticate regularly and are happy with leaving your YubiKey in your computer all the time. Which is uh, kind of like the core reason you use your Nano. Like, you have a laptop, yep. you just leave it on all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now, no, I, we don't need to play any more of their video because you use YubiKey every single freaking day. And there's several models, and we have the information about the different models in the show notes. If people want to check it out, uh, we'll have a link mm -hmm. in there. But there's there's different ones in there. You and I have, uh, you and I each have, I have like the real basic one. You have much fancier right. ones than I so, do. The, the, the main segment is going to talk primarily about SSH authentication. Now, the YubiKey is specifically designed as an open device, an open authentication device that you can use in a number of different scenarios. And the segment that we pre-recorded is going to talk specifically about how to use it to authenticate into SSH. But of course, there's a number of other things that you can do uh, with the YubiKey, one of which is the one-time password feature. Yeah. So when you press the button on the YubiKey, it's going to generate a one-time password that you can use to log into some of your accounts. Now, that one-time password is then cross-referenced with the password uh, at... Uh, the Yubico server it, to, to see if it is a valid one-time password or an invalid one-time password. And then if it's valid, it lets you proceed. If it's invalid, it, it, it denies you. Now, you can use though that one-time password feature with a number of different services, including places like the blockchain.info, the wallet service, or uh, a lot of people use it with LastPass. Now, oh, I use yeah. it with LastPass, and that's a super compelling way to, to use your YubiKey to secure LastPass, you don't need anything special. Any of the YubiKeys, to the best of my knowledge, will support one-time password authentication with the exception, I think, of the of the FIDO U2F. And I'll look at that uh, while while the video is playing and, and confirm one way or the other. Um, but even the standard $25 YubiKey is going to do this. And all you need to do to set it up in LastPass is open your, your LastPass up inside of the browser, click on Settings, and then inside of the Settings window, there's two-factor authentication. Check it, plug your YubiKey in, and press the button. Nice. And that will pair your YubiKey with LastPass. Now, one of the big concerns that some Easy. people had was, what happens if I lose my YubiKey? Well, for my my answer to that is, I have two. I pair both my YubiKeys with my LastPass, so if I ever lose one, I have a backup. Now, mind you, the whole idea of two-factor authentication is the same thing as the debit card, something you have and something you know, your debit card and your PIN. With the LastPass, it's something you have, your YubiKey, and something you know, your password. If you are to, tell, if you are to complain to the company that they should let you into your account, even though you don't have the thing you're supposed to have, you kind of defeat the purpose of having two-factor authentication in the yeah. first place. And actually, um, you know what? No, they're only twenty-five dollars. That's not horrible right. to have yeah, two you of need, them. You should have. You should have two. I, I, I really think that. Um, but uh, so that is how you can use the one-time password feature. Now, I haven't really used the U2F feature a whole lot, other than uh, to use it to sign into my Google account. And I actually disabled it because it had some conflicts with the CCID function. And I'll talk about that more a little bit in the video that is just coming up.
Okay, all right, Noah. Well, there we go. So, uh, And now uh, stay tuned. So if you want to see how Noah rolls his YubiKey into his Linux production environment, he's got it all set up for us right here. Here we go. I'm going to walk you through exactly what it takes to use the YubiKey as an SSH token or in uh, an SSH certificate. In a typical SSH environment, you would generate a key on your laptop and copy the public certificate over to the server. When you go to initiate an SSH session, what happens is the laptop uses the private key to prove that it is an authorized user to access the server and then access is granted. But that can be disadvantageous for a couple of reasons. The first being that private key, if it ever gets out, if anyone were to ever copy it, it becomes useless um, because then the security is, is exposed. So you need to keep very, very close track of that private certificate. And that basically rules out copying them over uh, a USB thumb drive or storing them on a NAS or a, in a cloud space. You would never want to do that with an SSH uh, certificate. So typically what you do is when you get a new laptop, you generate a new certificate and it's one certificate per computer. Now that works great for many people uh, and for most things, but the problem for me is I change laptops about as often as the wind changes direction. and I have 50 some odd servers that I manage on a monthly basis, and every time I get a new laptop, I would have to regenerate my SSH security configuration and send out that public certificate uh, to each one of those servers, and that gets to be extremely tedious. The nice thing about the YubiKey, when used correctly, is that it never gives up the private key. So the private key is stored on this device, and this can be considered completely secure. I can take this from one computer to the other, and there is really no security risk in doing so. Now, I keep two with me on a daily basis. I keep one that I carry around my neck for using computers like my office computer or when I'm in Seattle using the any of the computers at JB. And then I have a smaller one that I keep inside of my laptop uh, known as the Nano, which is a tiny little, it just fits right inside of the USB port. Um, and so essentially, anytime I have access to my laptop, I have access to all of my uh, SSH uh, security keys. Okay, this next thing I'm going to play, I have to give you a little bit of behind-the-scenes information. It was a little last minute. I thought I was all done traveling for the year, and so did Noah. In fact, we were starting to plan show content that was completely unrelated to our trip to System76. But when we got the email from System76 about their Superfan contest, well, two things came to mind. A... I've never been to Colorado. I've <laughs> never been to Denver. And B, I would be fascinated to see what it looks like from the inside of one of the largest Linux hardware vendors. And, and so I had to say yes. And a little bit of side information, a little tidbit that uh, Carl told me, they looked it up. Uh, and I don't, I, this is not official. And pretend like he didn't tell me this and pretend like I didn't tell you this. Uh, because I don't, I don't know how officially I want this to be or not. But uh, it looks like by the numbers, by the data, I may have been one of the very first System76 customers ever. And uh, they were looking back. You know, they've been around for 10 years. And about 10 years ago, I was joining a company. And I, I was drawing a hard line because this was right before I decided to go into my own contracting and do consulting. And so I was becoming a bit of a diva. And I said, well, if I'm going to come work for you, I have to have my own laptop. I get to pick it. And it needs to be a budget around this amount. And this is the only th – if you don't agree to this, this is, this is my condition. I will not come work for you. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's no problem. What? I mean, I was blown away by this. And, and of course, 
I got a System76 machine because I wanted to run Linux as my full-time workstation, and I didn't want to have any problems. I wanted to be a shining example of how kick-ass the Linux desktop is. And I think you might know what that feels like. You want to show them it can be done. But one of the things that System76 does that still is irreplaceable is they close that uncanny valley. They make it possible to actually use a Linux machine every single day in production because they freak out about all of the little details. And I know that now, having gone there, there is interesting little tidbits that I don't think you would ever even notice that they agonize over. System76 are the creators of computers designed and born to run Ubuntu Linux. They run Linux perfectly. You can pretty much load any distribution and have no problems. They have desktops, they have laptops, they have servers, and they also have a holiday special. I got a chance to play with the RX Pro, which you're going to see a little more in this next clip. This is probably the best desktop replacement I have ever used. It is, and I've got, and I say that, having two Bonobos, two Bonobos from System76 on my desk right now. I got one right here, <laughs> and I got another one over here in the corner, which you can barely see because it's all wired in. But I got two Bonobos right here, which are definitely desktop killers. They're big rigs with NVIDIA cards in them, but... but they are of a past era. They're, you know, three years old. And now, in nearly 2016, we can produce something that is truly remarkable. And I had the pleasure of using this machine. And I, I, I sincerely hope System76 sends me a final unit for review so I can tell you how awesome it is officially. But unofficially, I really loved the Oryx. They're not paying me to say that. It's not even a shipping product at this point, I do not believe. Uh, I, that's just my personal opinion. Also, their desktops, specifically the Rattel Performance, is an incredible rig. Uh, the, the Serval Workstation is also an amazing rig. They have so many good systems out of the box. They work great with Linux. Check them out, system76.com, longtime supporters of this show. So that brings me to officially my favorite clip of the show, and that was our chance to go to System76. And right after this clip, I'm going to play a little behind-the-scenes thing that you got a little peek of in the rover log, but this is going to be the unedited Full behind the scenes, there was a moment, it literally came down the wire for us to get live and do a show from System76 and Noah Save the Day. I'm going to play that clip for you, but first, I'm going to play one of my favorite moments from our visit to System76. Okay, Noah, I got it recording now. Okay, all right. The sign tells me to go this way. All right. Look at that, there's a sign on the wall. It's probably a good chance where we're supposed to go then. I think you're right. Ooh, 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 I see, I see. What do you see, Noah? What do you see? And there's the door. <laughs> and then we entered knock, System knock, 76. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was. It's been. A, it's been a fun couple of days that we've been here, and we get to experiment. I've been running the uh, the little uh, the whole episode on the new Oryx Pro laptop. Yeah, yeah. I got my hands on that. It's not officially released yet, but they had it here in demo for people to check out. And they're like, I needed a laptop to borrow tonight. Can I? And he's like, yeah, you can take any of the car. He's like, you can take any laptop. Oryx Pro. I'll take the Oryx, please. And so I grabbed that laptop. It's been an amazing machine. I won't, it's not the, I won't, I'm not doing a review yet, but let me just say, it has been a very impressive computer. I've really enjoyed it. You know, there's a number of things I've liked about System76. I, I mean, first of all, off the bat, this is 
by far been the easiest on-site location thing we've ever done because every time we're like, we need a computer. They're, oh, let's let's build you a computer right yeah. here in the thing. And they, yeah. literally, they're just, they're like, what graphics card do you want? Do you want a 600 series, 700 series, 900 series? Do you want Nvidia? Do you want Intel? Do you want, yeah. like, uh, oh, yeah, you need, you need, uh, just oh, you, a, you need another Ethernet? capture card? Yeah. We can put a yeah. capture card. Yeah. You want Ethernet? Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything mm-hmm. we wanted, mm-hmm. they just, I mean, we have professional light setups. We have underlight. We have a cool desk. I mean, like, just... Unbelievable, nice. unbelievable nice. support yep. from System76. And the other thing is, I was I kind of alluded to this yesterday, is we have our operating system. If you are reliant to do your work on Windows or Mac OS, and you come to, a, to, to any place, really, you can't just... I mean, you, I suppose you could go to Best Buy and buy another computer for a couple thousand dollars, but... You'd have to spend all the time uh, installing, you know, the operating system yeah. and the drivers and stuff. They are literally—he takes his computer in from his house, plugs it in, images it with fourteen oh four, which takes about thirty-five seconds, and then he yeah. hands it to us, yeah. and then all, you know, and then we can just think, do what we want. I think one of the things walking away from this is the biggest experience I had is there is so much going on behind the scenes here that you have no idea. Like that imaging system you just talked about yeah, is yeah. a custom oh, system yeah, they yeah. built to make it possible. Like yeah. so many little things, like little, like like oh, there's this minor issue in the firmware, so we're not shipping that product yet, and we have to make sure this is perfect. And mm-hmm. it's, so much of that happens, or or how the manufacturing process happens here in the U.S. People don't even know about that. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So it was interesting to come here and see some of that too. Uh, so it's been a pretty good experience. Any other uh, kind of uh, wrapping thoughts you have on our trip to System 76 there, Noah? You know, I guess the, the biggest thing is just a huge thank you to Carl and 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 Emma and Luis and all mm-hmm. the people that have been, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole team here that has mm-hmm. really kind of just welcomed us with open arms and helped set us up with the, the yeah. hotel and point us to the good restaurants and, and just really taking us yeah. taking us in for the time that we've been here. It's been a it, it, hands down best on-site location thing we've ever done mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of fun and it's been uh, it's been some good experiences with uh, meeting different individuals too that come out here some excited oh, people. Yeah, sorry. That's another thing. Uh, mm-hmm. you ha- you want to meet people that <laughs> you want to meet some people that really hate windows? <laughs> you 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 want to meet some people that really don't like Apple products? I mean, this is the place to go. Like how m- every every time we're turning around, somebody's somebody's making fun of windows or making fun of it yeah, does feel just, good. It does feel good. It does. It's, it's, it's cathartic. Yeah, it's it's, nice. it, it, it's, it's kind of nice. It's out of your system. Well, and so the rest of the place that we go as geeks, as Linux geeks, we're always being made fun of. It's like, oh, you're using that other operating system here. And if you're not using Linux, and actually really specifically Ubuntu even, if you're not using Ubuntu, it's like, you're yeah. second class. Maybe. Yeah. Not, do anybody care to? I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I did feel a little art shame at one point. Yeah. But it wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, with a big thank you to System76, it was really cool. We'll have more, too, in the Rover log. When that makes it out, check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover for that. And a big thank you for everybody out here, everybody that came out to say hi to us at the meetup last night as well. That was a lot of fun. So that is the Linux Action Show's trip to System76. There's always something that comes up in these live events. Now, that wasn't even the most challenging thing. The most challenging thing was that I forgot our video capture equipment. That's in the Rover log. But what was really great was there was a moment where uh, a great guy at System76, Ian, he made us a Cat5 cable. Sounds great. We needed a Cat5 cable because if you're doing a live stream, you don't want to use Wi-Fi. That's a little pro tip, a little production pro tip. However, when you make your own Cat5 cables, from time to time, they don't turn out that well. And so when we couldn't get online, when we troubleshot everything we thought it could possibly be, we realized you know what, this is probably a layer one issue, and it's time to make a whole new cable. And so this is a clip, right, uh, this is raw, it might be a little hard to hear, but I wanted to give you a little behind-the-scenes clip from our trip from System76 that hasn't aired anywhere else. Noah, yeah. Noah's making a Cat5 cable. Now, because he's a geek, and real geeks make their own Cat5 cable. See, here's the thing, is we're actually, we're not getting on the air until this Cat5 cable is made. So it's, we're literally getting ready for this, down to the wire. 
You see what I did there? You see what I did there? Down to the eight wires. Yes. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> Go ahead, Noah. You can do it. I can't. Like that you can't. <laughs> wow, you pull a lot of that out. Of Behind the scenes on what it takes to get on the air at a JB Live event. <laughs> No, you're not supposed to be working now. Make Chris do all that stuff. Yeah, right. I don't think you want that. I don't think you want that. You probably want the guy that's done this more than once or twice. See, Chris, too. I thought they were giving you a hard time the other day about your hair. Orange stripe, orange, green stripe, blue, blue stripe, green, brown stripe, brown. But now that I see it, I agree with no. There's some something special you do. <laughs> I was actually yeah. complaining. The Denver water, it's, it's the secret is Washington water, I think. That's actually the secret sauce. I think if I stayed here very long, the hair would uh, probably get up and migrate back to uh, the Pacific Northwest. Now, here we are, moments before we could get on air. It is down literally two seconds. And somehow, Ryan from the Minecraft Project wants to talk about my hair. I mean, let's be honest, it is impressive. I would pay to yeah. see that, actually. Yeah. It would be painful. In fact, you probably have so many people paying to see it, you could retire. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's a good idea. Okay. I have shirts for you guys. Okay. You can do it, Noah. Not with not sharp tools, I can't. Noah realizes oh, the release. tools are very, very, very sharp. Very sharp. Teeth. This has a, a snipper in it. If you do this, this one where it's not double bladed, it's a great snipper. Is it? Yeah. Let's see. I think I got this one cut out for the other end. Do you get the one right? Let's see. Orange stripe, orange. Blue stripe, green. Oh. Green stripe. Blue, brown, straight brown. Oh, so close. Mistake is so realized. Close. So close. That's probably the problem. Let me double check the other end of the cable. That's true. It might be. A, you yeah. all know this. Noah completes the crimp, plugs it in, and the OBS machine is online. Well done, Noah. And you know you gotta you gotta give Noah props. Uh, the man made a cable under pressure. Uh, you can't really tell based on our semi-casual conversation there, but uh, the deadlines when you're doing those kinds of on So here's what happens is you're on location. You're, you are communicating with a remote studio who has a, in a, who is a, in a completely different time zone, who has a live chat room, who wants to know where you're at. They're trying to mix in maybe some music and they're trying to bring all the different feeds in and you have to tell them when to cut to you and you say, okay, we're just about ready. All the software set up. We're brought, oh, wait a minute. We don't have the connection. And then it's, well, where are you at? Where are you at? And the people back in the studio, Rikai, have to vamp on the live stream until we get this connection. So while uh, it seems pretty casual, Noah managed to do all of that under the gun, and it is one of my favorite moments, and uh, it never made it on the air. In fact, a lot of our live events, those moments never make it on the air. One that did, though, is maybe my favorite thing that happened in the Linux Action Show in all of 2015. I love this moment of the show, and it's just because it's never happened on this show, and it's probably pretty rare to happen in podcasting alone. That's when Noah conducted an interview from the top of a wireless tower. Climbing the tower was actually a blast. We put in to practice a bunch of safety precautions to make sure nothing bad would happen. After I got myself tied off and we got the equipment suspended 300 feet up in the air, we actually conducted an interview. And Zach explains exactly what happens on this tower and all the other towers that this tower communicates to, to provide wireless internet to their customers. By far one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. I, uh, <laughs> Zach somehow has gotten me up here 
What are we, 300 some feet up? Uh, yeah, about 350 feet. We're on, we're on tower uh, that provides internet to this whole city. <clears throat> and they provide it wirelessly. Zach, how often are you up here? I'm about once a month installing or changing equipment. Do you ever get, uh, you don't have a fear of heights then? Absolutely not, I love this view. Now, is this, uh, this is kind of your main tower? Yeah, this is our main data center, is underneath this tower. Um, it's on the top floor of this building, and this tower is actually built about 40 feet above the roof of this 330-foot building. <laughs> so we're actually quite a bit high, and, and unfortunately the camera's mounted on the other side of the tower, I would show you the ground. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it's taken quite a bit of work to, to get all this kind of set up. Yes, yes, and the weather is so great, as you can see, all this rain and wind. Now, this actually wirelessly links to other towers in the area, is that the way it works? Yes, that is correct. We have, um, from, this, from this building and this tower alone, we have a link that goes 44 miles up to North Carolina. That's our farthest link by far. But our shortest one is actually to a tower over here, it's about four miles. And uh, you, you guys maintain all of that stuff? Yes, um, so I, 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 I do the primary tower work and also most of the networking. And then below where we are now, this is where your main data center is, huh? Yes, um, and the top floor of this building right under this tower is our main data center where we get our internet from and also house all of our servers. Now, what primarily is the equipment on this tower that we're looking at? So um, the primary vendor that we use for all of our wireless equipment is a company called Ubiquity. Um, we use a lot of their different products, and but we also, on this particular tower, we also have a SAF Technica link. It's a licensed link, 11 gigahertz, to six, uh, our particular link is six miles, and can do 336 megs. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. And all that's being powered uh, from from all this equipment. These are all antennas I see? Yes, uh, the, the, everything, uh, um, the white things below us are antennas and we'll, we'll show you some still shots of those later. Um, but um, we have, I think about 11 or 12 different antennas on this roof. Not all of them are on this tower, but a lot of them are. And then the radios are attached behind them? Yes, and all, all of our products that we use, we run either ethernet or fiber up to the radio and then the radio is mounted directly to the antenna. Outstanding, anything else you wanna Anything else you want to tell me before you get me down from here? <laughs> no, no, it's just going to take a few minutes to get everything wrapped up. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks a lot for, for doing an interview at 300 plus feet. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in throughout the whole year of 2015. And if you're new, welcome to Linux Action Show. Go check out our subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. That is the lifeblood of this show. Supply links, projects you think we should look at. Feedback is also welcome there. And number one, news stories you think are relevant that changed open source history and you think should be included in Linux Action Show or Linux Unplugged, check them out. Also, I should mention, I am really, really proud of the way the Linux Unplugged retrospective turned out. We covered some great topics. We had some really nice new original content and we had the whole Mumble A team there to comment on 2015. It is a fantastic episode and Linux Unplugged has grown like crazy this year. If you haven't checked out Linux Unplugged yet, it is the best Linux podcast you're not listening to. Well, you might be listening to it because it has grown like crazy, but it is so good. And I, and I just thank you so much to all the people that contribute to that. And it is a great companion to this show. And as we now approach our 10th year, it is with extreme humbleness that I say thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. And please tune in next week. tell you what happened here's what happened okay. with the kde okay. thing is i was I working i was working on uh, on filter 
and uh wait hold on and the audio crapped no although i did start oh. i i i did i the audio stuff is did it has some other problems but no uh what happened was is i had avid Mux open i had a couple of note windows open i had a couple of web browser windows open i had a couple of file manager windows open and uh the window decorators all disappeared so maybe this was you know uh, you know some sort of it wasn't your regular plasma desktop crash where plasma desktop comes right back the title bar was gone uh, i mean the title bar was there but i couldn't i could click it but nothing would happen so it was just sort of like frozen there and i'd lost all the window controls all the all the de grab points around the windows so it was like all frameless and i couldn't change the focus of any of the windows so all the stuff that was like sticking over my other windows i couldn't get to underneath it and uh, I eventually just had to kill the desktop, which dumped all the applications, which made me lose my edit in my video and my notes, uh Oh, uh, which was kind of a bummer. And my positions in the file managers, which was kind of nice because I was organizing files around. And so I was like, yeah, that's enough of that. So that was the second crash of the day. Um, and that was, you know, I lost 10, 15 minutes worth of work. Uh, so that was that was done. So that was and I believe it was KDE like 5.5.5. 1.8 or something like it, it had been like twice updated since the review but i was still having some problems and then the other big thing i've definitely 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 noticed between the plasma 5.5 desktop and gnome 3.18 is the plasma 5.5 desktop noticeably makes the bonobos gpu run hotter to the point where the fan is audibly louder under the plasma desktop on both a newer model bonobo and an older model bonobo and my, I, I, I do not have that problem under GNOME. I assume it's probably Kwin using the hell out of OpenGL or something like that. But so that was the last drop for me. All done with the with the Plasma Desktop experience. All done. <laughs>